Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Welcome back, folks. This is the WP Tonic Roundtable Show. This is episode 280. Yes, the episodes are flying. Uh, we've got a really great panel here. Got some great news stories as well. And I'm going to let the panel introduce themselves. I'm sure some people will already right, arrive late and join us, hopefully, as well. And I'm going to let my friend John Locke introduce himself first. Off you go, John. Sweet. My name's John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design. We do SEO for manufacturing firms. There you go. There you are. Great. And we've got Chris Badgett. Would you like to introduce yourself, Chris? My name's Chris Badgett. I focus on online courses and membership sites and have a product in that space called Lifter LMS and also have a podcast on that topic called LMS Cast. You look very comfortable this week, actually, Chris. My wife's away, so I'm taking over the house. Oh, sweet. And uh, we've got the great Morton joining us as well. Would you like to introduce yourself, Morton? Hello, I'm Morten Ran Hendrickson. I'm a senior staff instructor with LinkedIn Learning and Lynda.com. And uh, today I'm here speaking about philosophy. Yes, yes, yes. You're, you're at the right show, folks. This is this is mostly about WordPress and stuff on the web. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's get straight into the stories then, because uh, I know Morten's got a hard deadline. Um, Using ethics in web design, a smashing magazine article by a guy, a friend I know, a guy called Walton. Would you like to, um, if it's possible, Walton, give a quick synopsis of why you wrote this article and maybe the main overhanging theme of the article? Sure. The if you if you've been paying attention to conversations on. Um, the web and in tech in general for the past couple of years, uh, there's been a lot of focus on this concept of ethics in our work. Uh, This stems from a bunch of events that have transpired over the past couple of years, like major leaks of data and companies selling information to political organizations and very problematic behavior within companies around women and people of color and minorities and there's just this endless barrage of very problematic uh, situations that have occurred and people are starting to look at what are the causes for this and it seems pretty uh, apparent that one of the causes is a lot of the tech space are is driven by businesses who started in a garage or in some sort of dorm room or something like that. And they never um, established a proper foundation of ethics. They were more just building things around break, what is it, move fast and break things. Um, and it appears that a lot of these move fast and break things, we've ended up breaking society and breaking people. So there's a ton of conversations around ethics in tech space. And a lot of those conversations come from the perspective of ethics is this new thing that we've just discovered that we've, and this is what it looks like. And then um, 
there's a bunch of presentations of things like um, a code of ethics for design or um, uh, um, a Hippocratic oath for data scientists and and things like that. And you know, like Jonathan, I'm I my background is in philosophy, and when people yeah. use I'm a life of ethics, mate. <laughs> I went to crappy comprehensive. There's no philosophy. It's just self-talk, basically. Yeah, but you, you have some philosophy background. So, so I, a couple of years ago, I decided that I would come into this conversation and shed some light on how um, the practice of ethics as a science can be used to further the tech space. Uh, and I started writing an article that took me two years to write uh, because it's very, very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons it's complicated is when we talk about ethics, we generally talk, we pick a moral philosophy and then we, we follow that train of thought. So um, for instance, in the tech space, the normal thing you see a lot of is consequentialism, something like the 80-20 rule, like you do things that benefit the majority and then to hell with the minority or you know, things like that. That's the most common type of business practice we have. And that is in tech space too. So often when you see argumentation around things like features in WordPress or somewhere else, that is the general rule is like whatever benefits the majority is what goes, even if it disadvantages some people. Um, In addition, we have a lot of these codes of ethics, which are lists of, you know, a designer should be a person that does this and this and this, and that's virtue ethics. and those things are fine. They just, the problem with them is they're hard to measure. So what I did was look at four different branches of moral philosophy and say, what if we, instead of picking a branch of moral philosophy, made a chain where we say we run through a set of different ones that each fix each other's problems to create a cohesive platform of ethics. And then only, we, only slightly ambitious. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and then we build methodology around this so that when decisions are being made in the tech space, we can anchor those decisions in um, a firm ethical uh, foundation. So what I, uh, the, the theories I put together are uh, consequentialism, which is uh, what's best for the most people. Um, uh, deontology or duty ethics, which is what people may have heard about the Kant's categorical imperative, which is this idea that you act as if the act that you perform should be the act that any other person in the same situation should perform as well. Um, then we have virtue ethics, which is you behave in accordance with the type of person you want to become. Um, and then finally, we have something called capability approach, which is rarely talked about in our community and also rarely talked about in philosophy, to be quite honest, which is the newest branch on the moral philosophy tree, which shifts the judgment of the ethics of an action from the actor or from the act onto the person acted upon to say, when you perform an act, what capabilities are you granting the person acted upon so that they can better their lives? Um, And if you take these philosophies and make a chain out of them. So it's kind of like a bridge with four peers. Then you can say, when you're making a new decision, you always start with the capability approach. And you say, what kind of, what kind of capabilities am I granting the end user of this product or this decision by doing this? And how can that person take that capability to enhance their lives in some way? 
then you go on to virtue ethics and say, am I the, do I become the kind of person I want to be by doing this? So do I build myself as the professional I want to be by making this decision? Um, and am I comfortable with that type of person? Then you go to um, duty ethics and say, in doing this, I am establishing a de facto norm for this. And is this a norm? So do I want every other person in the same situation to do the same thing? And am I upholding my duties of care to the person I'm acting upon, to the thing I'm building, to my client, to myself and everything else? And then finally, you go to consequentialism and say, what are the outcomes of what I'm doing here? Have I accounted for all the outcomes? Am I making sure that the people who are this advantaged by these decisions are being handled in a proper way so that I don't create some sort of schism between those who get benefits and those who don't. Um, and when you string all that together, you'll have a much deeper conversation about your decisions and what you are creating. Now, that's not to say this methodology produces a list of do's and don'ts in tech. And that's not the purpose of it. That's not the purpose of ethics either. The purpose of ethics is to say, um, to have a methodology in place, to have discussions around whether an act is something you should perform or not. So it's not a mandated list of things you must follow. It's a list of uh, discussion points you need to address before you continue. So you have actually thought through these elements before you roll out a product or make a decision. Yeah, um, Thanks for that. Um, I think we probably lost about half the audience, but there we go. Uh, um, I mean, there, um, it, yeah, it's, it's a complicated subject. Um, I think I think you're really brave to do this, and also I think it's rather important because people have a tendency to think, you know, that they have no philosophy and no ethics, but they do. It's just it's just a vacuum, isn't it? You know, if you allow a vacuum, it's going to be filled with something. Um, what did you think of this, Chris? I thought it was a great article. I actually have a background in philosophy myself, too. And to go deep into... Yes, that's right, folks. It's this week. <laughs> <laughs> to go deep into this issue, I, I think, is, is really admirable. And I, I hear you that it took uh, two years to write and kind of put it all together. Um, I think in the tech space, it can be very myopic sometimes in terms of ethics. Let's say an engineer founding team or whatever, you know, they're going after monthly recurring revenue, build fast, break things, um, try not to die. They're not necessarily asking the big questions. So <clears throat> I find this helpful and I'll just share because I, I think to take what Morton was just talking about and apply it. <laughs> These are some of the issues that we look at at Lifter LMS. So for capability, what world or future are you building for the end user? We're trying to empower people to learn. We're trying to empower experts and entrepreneurs to be able to build careers, businesses, and impact in a world where the traditional systems don't always work out well for people, both from a learning and a teaching perspective. That's a big part of why we do what we do and informs how we make decisions. What kind of person do we want to become in the process? When we look at our tech, um, we just want to empower people. So that involves listening to them, talking to them, you know, serving people who have a message to share, a skill to share, to develop other people, it, like sends out a ripple. And being a generating force behind that ripple is something that we value. And then the norms and expectations, um, this is a really interesting one because 
when you're building, especially in the e-commerce space, um, it's really easy to get really focused on like the conversion and the checkout and, you know, maximizing revenue for the person building the site. But there's so many other norms that are important besides making money with a website. Um, so when we design tools, it's not just focusing on helping people sell the most amount of courses and membership sites possible. There's a lot of other things like uh, empowering their students, opening up feedback loops for communication. All these other norms are really important to us when we design. Um, and then the consequentialism, I think, is really great. And I can admit that we're not the best at this. I just, I remember yesterday making the comment like, well, 80% of our people need this, so we should focus on this. And where it does happen, I get the question a lot myself, how does Lifter LMS work with accessibility? I'm like, we're not there. We haven't focused on it. Like I'm, I'm kind of flying blind. I know I need to focus on that. But uh, I think that's a really interesting topic in terms of neglecting mon- the minority and however you define that. Well, Sometimes I, I, it's not the best idea. I know, good, uh, know, uh, know a, a good expert on that. He's actually on this panel, so you might be... <laughs> um, before I throw it... Um, oh, yep. Uh, oh, so um, we're both... To recap, we're talking about uh, Morton's article uh, once again about ethics uh, um, and the web. Two words, ethics and web, that don't seem to have a lot of linkage at the present moment. Um, before I throw it over to John to see what his thoughts about this, I just want to say my own personal stance. Um, the reason why I thought it was an interesting article is um, the news cycle in general seems to be accelerating um, with um, tech embroidered into a number of larger um, stories um, that are impacting people's lives on a regular basis. And I don't see that cycle slowing down. I actually can see it increasing, which is quite amazing. Um, also, personally, um, I'm kind of revolted at the hypocrisy of, of Silicon Valley and, the, and some of the large players in it. I personally rather deal with an honest rogue than a so-called liberal that are, um, or somebody, some organisation that kind of comes out with um, um, statements that are obviously not realistic and not in their culture, really. Um, I find it rather personally nauseating, but that's me. What do you reckon, John? Well, um, it's very interesting because I, I think that the problem is not really a ethics and tech problem. It's a ethics in humanity problem uh, <laughs> where we start with the end, which is make money. And then whatever means is necessary to get there are justified as long as we get there. And when we're talking about the bridge of ethics, like what kind of person am I going to become? I'm rich, bitch. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's, there's, when Morton addresses this, there's like a, um, there's a veneer of ethics such as don't be evil or, but it, oh, we, we got somebody on the panel that knows about evil. Yeah. 
<laughs> but I mean, it really doesn't mean anything if if you don't have um, some sort of code. Everybody, everybody has some sort of code that they live by, whether it's uh, do unto others as they do unto you, or uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, and there's a world of difference between those two statements. But I think the idea is if you're building a, a product that's going to be used by a, t a ton of people on the web, I think you need to ask yourself this question. Are you okay with having total transparency if users know exactly how uh, you're doing stuff in the background, um, what things you're collecting, how you're using your data, uh, how you run your company and, and how you make your decisions about how you're building your product to either benefit or, uh, you know, use the customer. And a great example here. It's like, oh, we can't use ad revenue, so let's use uh, crypto jacking as a revenue <laughs> model instead. Something's really broken, like when that's, you know, what we're doing. So I'll toss it to Adam. Well, it's, it's very relevant to the WordPress um, ecosystem, really, because you have all these crippled plugins, don't you? And you install half of them, and it's not that clear where where they are crippled when they're not crippled. And Morton's got his position that the whole that whole model it's is dark patterns. You know, I'm not so. I just think you need to be very clear what you're providing, what you're well, not providing. First of all. Every single one of the things that John just mentioned is actually addressed in that article. <laughs> like literally, absolutely every single one of them. I've read it, I've um, read it, but I'm going to have to read it. Including the crypto jacking, which is the yeah. primary example at the top. Um, but uh, I think the, to, to, to put this in some perspective, if you look at so yesterday, there was a memo leaked from Facebook. You know, as everyone harps on Facebook right now. So can, we, can we actually link Facebook? Can we have a disc yeah. <laughs> link Facebook with so morals? There's actually this interesting sub-conversation happening in Facebook right now because the, the memo was like shared in the internal Facebook system, which is based on the same Facebook sharing system as everything else is. And then someone was like, well, I have well, got their security, security settings a bit better set up. It's like, can you call it a leak if the actual system is built around sharing. <laughs> so, but that's beside the point. So in this memo, which was written a couple of years ago, I think 2016, um, one of the executives at Facebook is talking about how the nature of Facebook is to connect people and that that uh, is what drives the company. And when you read it in a very shallow way, it looks like a um, manifesto that just states like, this is what Facebook does. And by connecting people, that, that trumps every other aspect of our business and it's always good. But if you read it with a little more, like if you assume that the person writing it was being critical of the way that Facebook operates, you very quickly see that what he's trying to do is saying, look, if we approach this from a con consequentialist perspective alone and look at it, then it is okay what we're doing because we're just trying to f trying to connect as many people as possible. We're pulling all this data in to make connections with people and making sure that they get connected to all the people they might possibly know. And that justifies all our decisions. And then at the bottom of that thing, which is really short, um, and I can give Jonathan a post so that he can link to it that has the thing with some analysis on it. Um, 
at the bottom, he starts talking about what are our values and are these our values? Um, and it doesn't go any further than that. And I think this is what I was trying to address with the article, that when we talk about decision-making in, our, uh, in the tech space, what we're missing is a foundation of method, like a foundational methodology for actually analyzing our decisions on the, and what the outcomes are properly. Um, if you look at other industries like engineering, for instance, so, you know, someone builds a bridge in Miami that falls down. Guess what? There are actual structures in place around engineering that will handle the situation. So when that happens, I, I know a, personally know a structural engineer who said within minutes, she was like, she was looking at the pictures and he's like, okay, so these, these are the people who are going to get in trouble for this. These types of people will lose their jobs over this. This person will likely go to jail. Like there's an actual system in place to handle these types of situations. But when you come to tech, which has just as much impact as a structural engineer, if something goes wrong, say Facebook sells data to a company that ends up manipulating elections, there is no recourse. Like nothing happens to Facebook except maybe people pull out and delete their accounts or maybe sell their stock, right? So there's no direct consequence. And so there's, there's two aspects of it. One is that tech actually needs to have proper um, uh, governance in it to avoid, like, to have some sort of recourse for the end users when companies do bad things, which is going to take a decade or two or three to roll out. Um, but more importantly, each individual tech worker needs to build into their process a set of ethical, um, a, a, an ethical methodology so that when the conversation like the one that happened at Facebook does happen, it goes beyond just saying, hey, here's the consequentialist breakdown of this. And I think we should be talking about virtues, but I don't really know what I'm doing. To, because that conversation, that memo that was posted on Facebook, if you take that and you approach it, with the methodology I lay out in the article, you'll see you'll actually be able to dig way deeper into it and come out with answers that make sense. So rather than just having a thing that says, I think this is a problem, but I don't really know what to do about it, you can, you can break down why it's a problem, what needs to happen for that to be resolved and which discussions need to happen to make sure that these, you know, that they end up in the right place. And that's the purpose of this. The purpose of ethics is not to tell you what's right and wrong, it's to give you the method and the tools to be able to judge your own actions before you make them. Right. Um, thank you for that. I'm going to, what does, um, we've got an, another regular panelist join us. Adam, would you like to quickly introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I'm assuming I, I sound okay. I haven't tested my audio. Okay, good. Thank you. Glorious, uh, hi, guys. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm working on it. Um, hey, everybody. My name is Adam from WPCrafter.com. I make WordPress tutorial videos for people, and I'm glad to jump on today. And I I wanted to say to uh, on this conversation, actually, I didn't want to say anything, but now I actually kind of do. Um, uh, I think the, a lot of it boils down to like a simple thing that um, uh, ethics and uh, profitability t typically aren't like two things that are in alignment. Um, so, uh, you know, ethics is actually kind of a strong word. Uh, there are times where there is issues of ethics, like as we see with, with Facebook and all that. Um, but then when it's broken down into site design, it's a, it's a challenging thing. There's this disalignment with, uh, for example, I think one of the main points of the article is putting the user first. 
Sometimes, you know, we have to, it's, it's hard, right? Um, do you put the user first um, uh, in the most purest fashion or do you say, well, I've got to keep the lights on so that I can put the user someplace? You know what I mean? There's this, there's this constant at odds. Um, and I feel that even personally myself, I mean, I don't do pop-ups, but I do on my website do some things that do definitely do not put the user first. Like when you come to my website, if you haven't been there, I have a little thing that pops up on the bottom, you know, and we're actually forced by some of the regulations to not put the user first. I mean, it's kind of annoying having to pop up a cookie policy whenever someone comes to your website. That certainly doesn't put, the message might put the user first, but the interaction and the experience does it. Off to you, Martin. Yeah. You're right. It's complicated. <laughs> no, it's, it's complicated. It's super complicated. But that's, that's it's very complicated. But it, it's a great discussion to have. That's why I appreciate you always putting these really th challenging, thought-provoking arguments out there that no one else is really talking about. Um, this is a perfect example of that. How many words is this article? It's like 9,000. <laughs> 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 it was, it, it, and that's that's the very heavily edited version. It's going to be a book. Like there, there's, uh, I, I had a long, I had long fights with the publishers about whether or not you can actually publish a nine thousand word article and people will read it. But they are. So I put, I plant little pieces in it to make sure that when people comment on it, if they've read all the way to the bottom, they would say things, and then I can see that happening. So people are reading it, which you know. Yeah. Um, I absolutely want to read it from top to bottom. I'll say that I haven't, but I think this is one of those articles that I, I really will read from top to bottom and not skim. Okay, I have to run. Yeah. I have another meeting. Sorry. It's great to see you. Well, <laughs> have a good great. long weekend or short weekend or whatever you end up yeah. with. He's got confused. In Europe, folks, um, it's um, Easter weekend, and um, especially in the UK, everybody drives enormous distances which are nothing compared to North America. And they, they spend most of their time in traffic queues, getting very frustrated. Uh, right. <laughs> Before we, I'm going to go for I knew there was going to be a big subject. Uh, we've got a few other topics to, to discuss. Um, but I'm going to go for my break. But before I go for the break, I want to talk about our sponsor, and that's Intelligence WP. And what is Intelligence WP? It puts your Google Analytics in your dashboard of your WordPress website, and it provides enormous amounts of um, charts and information to your heart's content about who's coming to your website, and it makes it more visual and more understandable your google analytics and like i say it puts it in your wordpress dashboard where you're going the most to and it's not crippled it's a powerful plugin um they provide um paid packs where they will if you've got pacific tasks that you want to set up like you've got a, a woocommerce website and you want to set it up to uh, monitor particular products um, they you can buy a pack and they'll help you set it all up for that particular task so it's a pretty good deal so go to intelligence wp and also give them a twitter that you heard about them on wp tonic that that really gives them some joy and joy is great isn't it so we're going to go for our break and we'll be back with a load of other stories see you soon folks 
Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30 day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's WP Tonic.com. Just like the podcast. We're coming back. We've had philosophy, ethics. It's been a bit highbrow, much above my pay scale, but there we go. Uh, on to the next story, and that's WordPress design and development pricing structure service survey results from Server Pilot. Um, that's a title in its own way. But um, John, can you give a quick synopsis of what this story is about? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, Server Pilot they commissioned a survey in early 2018, and uh, they got responses from. Uh, 261 companies around the world, but uh, there are 184 of those were from the U.S., the U.K., Australia, uh, the Netherlands, and Canada. So most of these are are from uh, our neck of the woods. Uh, so there was a couple of interesting things that I noticed. Uh, by far, the largest percentage of respondents, their company. Uh, was founded in 2004 or earlier, 60%. And then the next, like most of them were, you know, from 2012 to 2017. Uh, something that was like very interesting, it popped out to me is uh, most of the people are charging between 50 and $150 per hour. Though if you're a freelancer or you identify as a freelancer, you're, more likely to charge, um, you know, in that 50 to 75 range. And if you identify as an agency, you're more likely to charge in the 100 to 150 range. And in fact, only, I think it was like 2% of freelancers charge above $100 an hour, uh, which is a little crazy to me. Uh, By far, more people were charging, uh, or they were, projects by an hourly rate then and very few people doing value pricing a lot of people were doing like package pricing to where it's like you know this package is x this package is y this package is z um but and a lot of people identifying as a full service digital agency i think it was 22 percent identified as a full service digital agency uh but then the majority of them said it was like, you know, uh, two people uh, or less in their uh, organization, which I found to be kind of contradictory. Um, yeah, very interesting uh, survey. Uh, it, it shows like there is a little bit of stable growth in the WordPress ecosystem, not like explosive growth, just kind of, you know, as small growth. Uh, I, I think the, the most people are, are on the smaller end. Most of the people in the ecosystem are either smaller shops of, of two or three people or they're freelancers. And that, that's really what I got out of this. 
I, I think that was a great synopsis. Thank you so much, John, for that. Um, I think that some of the things I got from it was exactly what you've just um, outlined. I also think I, I totally understand um, why this happens, and I... Um, it's so easy to go down that and you're in some ways you're forced down that, especially if you're doing direct work with, with clients, small businesses, um, is that you say you can provide almost everything, uh, you know, and they, in some ways they seem to want to demand it or it, it's price driven. I, you say you can do SEO, you can do content, um, development for them you can build the website for them you can host the website for them you can do this do that do the other um and it is in some ways it's driven by the market but in the other way it's i'll say um, i'm struggling now because i was going to utilize the word the wrong thing to do but that's too strong and that's not re really realizing the reality of the market i don't know if i'm dribbling here what do you reckon chris i think i think john did a good job but i think i'm just dribbling am i dribbling chris i don't think so no. um pricing is an interesting thing i started out as a 30 dollars an hour solo freelancer i grew to an agency of 17 people and we charged 200 dollars an hour and then we transitioned to becoming a product company and I, my first website, I charged $300 for. Later in the agency days, some of our projects were over six figures. And it's just, there's just so much that goes into that. And even with the high hourly rate, there's a lot of expenses and a lot of things that come out of that. And doing project-based pricing versus um, hourly, I always try to do project-based pricing. Um, but you know, if there's a lot of obscurity, we would do the hourly pricing. And I had to a lot of times tell people that no to certain things. Like we're not a systems administrator, like server DevOps. We're not SEO. We're not, there's, we're not copywriters. We're not, these are, um, so it's, it's about defining boundaries, but it is really easy, especially in the early days as a freelancer, I'm guilty of, uh, not in a bad way, but just doing whatever I could to keep the lights on like yeah. and learning. And I, I mean, I, I would study up, I would learn the best practices and SEO and do things for clients. But over time we ended up, the more we focused, the better it got, you know, in our agency days, we exclusively focused on membership sites and online course-based websites. And this is where Lifter LMS was born out of. But um, yeah, pricing is a very interesting and challenging thing for both the provider, the company and the client who needs to buy into that. Yeah, what what do you reckon, Adam? Oh, uh, well, see, you know what's uh, the 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 challenge with being a web developer or a freelance web developer is there's very little to there's actually no barriers to entry, right? Uh, that is a you know so a traditional brick and mortar business, you need to have money. And just by the fact that you have to have money and get a lease and, and all that kind of stuff, and, and it requires that capital investment, that's why you don't just have everyone going in and starting a brick and mortar type of business. There's this barrier to entry. Uh, 
making a website for someone today doesn't actually require any barrier to, there's like very next to no barrier to entry. You can get a WordPress that's free. You can get a theme that's free. You can get a page builder that's free. All these plugins that are free and you could probably pull it off. Um, that's, I think, why you see a lot of, when you're looking at the numbers, a lot of people, it's just one person or maybe two, which uh, means husband and wife. Um, and uh, you don't see any revenue growth because just because you raised your hand and said, I'm a web developer, doesn't mean that you know how to market yourself, build a brand, um, uh, establish yourself as an expert in a particular niche. That's why you don't have revenue growth. Now, the exciting thing, though, that I take away from this is it's great uh, if you are someone that wants to be a, a freelancer or, or morph into an agency, yet you do it with some strategy. Uh, you are um, uh, uh, figuring out how to differentiate yourself, build a brand, actually figure out a way to actually market yourself. You're that, that um, on the pay scale there, you're going to be the one that is having the massive growth because you can easily clobber up all the business that you can, you can handle. But uh, the reason I think some of these numbers are what it is, is there's just these low barriers to entry. Uh, I do believe it's a great time to be a web developer. It's a great time to be a web designer. Everyone needs it, but you just oh, you, need to, you do, you do think that, do you? I absolutely do. I absolutely do without a shadow of a doubt, because, you know, if you will take the time to not just make the website, but do the other 90% of the things that it takes to actually have a business, then it's, though the world is really your oyster. The world is really your oyster. You can get as much business as you want to get and make whatever revenue that you want to make and charge whatever you want to charge, but you just have to have some strategy. Um, and, but that's the challenge too, right? I'm, you know, I'm saying you need to do this, but it might not be in everybody's skill set to actually do that. And that's why you find yourself stuck making the 50,000 a year or maybe a hundred thousand a year and, you know, kind of struggling through it, not knowing where your next paycheck's going to come and Christmas is coming up, uh, you know, because maybe you don't have that full wealth of skill sets to actually run a business. Cause it's not about making the WordPress site. It's about running a business. Uh, attorneys, you know, attorneys, they go to law school and what have they learned? Law. What do they try to do? Open a law firm. What do they do? They close a law firm and they join a law firm because they don't know how to run a law firm. They know how to be an attorney and that's it. Um, and that's why, you know, you've got a lot of attorneys that are steeped in debt um, because they don't know how to run a business. Um, as a rant, rant. No, I see where you come from, but it's also, you know, um, it's supply and demand in the 80s, 90s, beginning of 2000s. If you didn't want to go into medicine and you came from a middle-class family in North America, um, you went into law because, you know, there was big bucks in it. And, you know, a lot of law schools started um, expanding um, their campuses, um, new law schools um, developed, everybody piled into it. And then you had the Great Recession and... um, Business lawyers weren't in such high demand, were they? So, um, and, um, you know, you wonder about the future of a lot of these law universities um, and these courses because there's just an oversupply 
of um, students, basically. Um, but I've, I've digressed there. Um, <clears throat> well, let, let me say if there was, if you're trying to make any linkage to that, to the topic of uh, web, web design and development, um, the difference with web design and development is uh, it really should be tied to monthly monthly maintenance and packages and monthly payments to services uh, for people. Uh, it really should be tied to that. And also one of the, if you're a web designer, let, get, get this in your head. The people you make a website for probably need a new one in two years. And the people that have a website might already need a new one. And this is going to be an ever revolving cycle. And they also need access to an expert that can help them, for example, with search engine optimization or conversion rate optimization or all of these things or you know I got to migrate backup optimize you know the services side of WordPress so there's so much opportunity if you have strategy and you know how to present yourself in a way that people will say no problem I'm going to pay you a thousand dollars a month but I'm potentially going to get ten thousand more per month in revenue where do I sign yeah kind of um I see it as a pipe and um, pipe that's got corners in it, and the flow the flow eases in one eye. The technology becomes easier to do something, but the blockage moves down somewhere, and there's always a need for a pipe cleaner. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe uh, that's the way I see it. There always will be. <laughs> there um, always will be. The problem just kind of moves around. The problem. That's an age-old problem from manufacturing. The bottleneck will move as soon as you fix something. And oftentimes in today's world and business, the next solution is also an online, you might be able to solve with technology. That's why there's so much opportunity. Even when the bottleneck, even when you fix one hole, another one opens up. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks. Um, I think we go on to the next story. And it's one I chose, and um, European, it's not the greatest title, European MPs are pushing for even more extreme link tax. Um, and um, I don't think this will fly, but the reason why um, I still put it in is um, there's been a lot of talk about cryptocurrency. You know, we men- we've mentioned it already in the first half of the show about, you know, um, um, people kind of... Um, rogue developers or whatever or plugins or whatever and um that their crypto mining utilizing your computer or whatever um but i really see um there's been a lot of talk about cryptocurrency um but where i do see in the end where it might be a powerful tool is in people that produces content at the present moment obviously if you produce a lot of really quality content there's benefits of building audience, um, getting recognition from Google. There's great benefits. But there's also a lot of people produce a lot of really good content and then it's scraped, it's ripped off, and they don't get payment um, off people. Um, I see the, um, the ability of technology through crypt- crypto um, currency, micro, really micro payments and being able to see where pieces being utilized as a mythology where um, people will in the end get paid for the materials they produce. Um, I don't know, any, any of you lot want to take up my little thing and, uh, about this article? What about you, John? Do you want to have a... 
Yeah, I, I, I'm going to jump on this. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but basically what's happening is there, and this is in the EU, or the EU right? Yeah. So they're proposing a thing. They're saying we want truth in journalism. We want to support good journalism. And so they're proposing a law to where uh, if you publish something and someone republishes it somewhere, you have to ask them for like compensation. Like you basically have to get paid for it. And their logic by this is saying that this will encourage, this will help sustain like real journalism and pay these little outlets. The problem is, is the smaller publishers and independent bloggers that are, um, might be getting like linked to from, uh, aggregate sites or larger sites, they might just simply get delisted because the the larger, um, say like the HuffPo of the EU, whatever that is, they don't they just don't want to compensate all these little publishers. So that that's basically the the, the flaw in this plan. Yeah, it's basically. What do you, what do you recommend them? Well, I think that, you know, what the internet's been around for 25 years and it hasn't really received that. Actually, it's probably been around a little longer than that. I'm just saying maybe when I first got my first computer 25 years ago or 20, 25. Yeah, I've had a computer. Man, I'm old, guys. I'm old man. See, I got no hair. Anyways, um, <laughs> the internet's largely been unregulated. I mean, we're in the infancy, infancy big time of the internet and the age of the internet. Um, and the, but this regulation that keeps coming out of the EU is nuts, right? Because they try to enforce it against the, the world. So you've got one um, uh, part of the world trying to dictate the entire internet for the rest of the world, right? We've got cookie law shoved down our throat. Um, now we have... GDPR, which should be a topic of a future episode because uh, that is right around the bend. Here I am in the United States. My server's in the United States. Most of my traffic's in the United States, but now I got to do all these things for the GDPR because some government body in a foreign nation that doesn't even have legal jurisdiction over me says I have to but I have to, I genuinely have to, to accommodate the European citizens. It's just, I think some of these things, it's going to be a bumpy road. Let's just put it this way. The more these Facebook scandals come out, it's going to be a very bumpy road ahead. Uh, you're going to have wacky things like this uh, from people that think the internet's just a series of tubes. Uh, I'm sure some of you guys might know that from what, 10 years ago. Um, not just me. You're going to see lots of nutty things uh, like this, because right now the internet still is the wild, wild west. Uh, so it's almost like one of those you buckle in and just see what they come out with uh, with uh, with next. And it's going to come out of Europe. No offense to Europeans, but the EU is like really likes to to, to do these things. But that being said, I'm not against uh, the GDPR. I'm not against privacy rights, and I'm not against the rights of content creators and content owners. I just think. Um, uh, the burden that some of these regulations are placing on it is going to be an extremely heavy burden. Yeah, I, I, before I turn it over to Chris, um, it, well, I think um, Professor Armstrong, um, we spoke about his interview when he was talking about, he's commented quite heavily about this and he pointed out <clears throat> when he was talking about Facebook is that 
you know, these regulations ain't really going to come from North America because fundamentally um, there's these tech companies have too much influence where in Europe um, the kind of um, influence they got is quite a lot less, i.e. their, their, their ability um, to manipulate the kind of um, influence they've got in um, with politicians in Europe is a bit less. So there's more benefit for the politician to come out with um, maybe policies that you see in this article. What do you reckon, Chris? I reckon that information wants to be free. And that's what the internet is always trying to do. Uh, with technology, you know, we try to give away as much as we can for free. That's how tech businesses are built. This podcast is free that you're that we're delivering this <laughs> through, uh, you know, this is going to end up on YouTube, which is free. And, um, but there's these, these, uh, I think it comes back to Morton's article, actually, what type of world do we want to live in? Um, so I love the internet. I love the wild West nature of it. It's almost like if we think about the telephone and, um, phone companies and long distance calling and the fees and all that stuff, Skype came in and just totally disrupted that. Like you can call anybody in the world for free. Um, it just, the world changed with the internet. And that's the, the power of the internet is not the information, it's the connection. But like Adam's saying, the content creator has certain rights. You know, if you're going to share somebody's stuff, there's like whatever, like the appropriate excerpt amount you know, quote it, attribute it to the person. Of course, this doesn't always happen. Um, if some, some piece of content is like paid or sponsored advertising, it, it needs to be clear that this is advertising. And, you know, I think the fact that Google, I think it's really the kind of the role of the search engine, you know, Google apparently gives you a higher value if you have a privacy policy and you've actually thought about these things and implemented that on your website. You have terms of conditions um, so it's a balance, but at the end of the day, um, trying to put the lid on the free flowing of information is really hard. Um, and it's just not worth politicizing. So, I, I mean, I think our governments around the world do need to, you know, have laws and regulations around communication, but I, I think it needs to exist in such a way that it, you know, appeals to their people as global citizens, not as, um, you know, individual nations. Like what do they call the, uh, in China or is it North Korea that has like the wall around the internet? Well, both, the both have, um, you know, the, obviously North Korea is a small country compared to China, but you know, China is, um, by buying certain Europe, European, um, technology and also developing their own has a very effective um to some extent wall when it comes to you know and i i think it was it facebook or Google? i think it was um i think some offices have closed people have pulled out china because it is extremely um they are censored aggressive in censoring any kind of um, discussions or articles or anything that threatens the central power of the Chinese um, Communist Party. So it is. <laughs> but they've managed to develop quite a robust comedy, haven't they? Even with those restrictions, haven't they? 
I just personally, from my opinion, I like information to be free and for the world's people to connect with each other. uh, But content creators need to be respected and, you know, advertising needs to be known as such. Yeah, it's a contradiction. Life's a contradiction, isn't it? There we go. Um, On to the next story. Um, Call for speakers, WP Campus. Um, They're having a little meeting. Um, I've got the website up. It's, I was going to give them a shout out. Yep, here we go. Um, it's in Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and it's July the 12th and 14th. And they're calling for speakers um, and all their selling tickets. Um, I think it's great that, you know, I, I still think there's still a market for maybe some very specialised conferences uh, around a Pacific. Um, it's great news. I'm quite supportive for what they do. Um, um, I cherry. So when, you know, when it says for higher learning, is that's not referencing like educators. That's referencing people that want a higher learning of WordPress. Correct. I think they. That's a very good point. Uh, um, I, I, my interpretation of what the conference target audience is, is people involved in courses in higher education. Anybody that's like, or somebody like yourself, Adam, that is in the private sector, but you are in education, aren't you? Uh, um, so anybody that's got interest about making uh, in the private sector or in the public or a mixture of both, that's in the business of education online, traditional, or a mixture of all, um, should consider maybe going to this conference uh, um, because that's what it's fundamentally about. Would you agree with that, Chris? Yeah, I, I do think they have a focus on the universities specifically and how WordPress is used like in multiple ways, like uh, for teachers, for departments, for administration, yeah. um, for media, so, but I, I, I do think, uh, you know, the definition of higher ed is, is debatable. And a lot of these topics are of value to, you know, other kinds of training and, and, and learning situations. Would you, uh, at some stage in the future, would do you think your company would consider maybe running a conference around online courses and education or something? Yeah, we've been talking about it for years. We call it uh, Lifter Live. It doesn't exist yet, but... Um, uh, I think I will probably run it at first virtually. Yeah. A lot of online course and membership site and teachers are really spread out all over the place. But uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to start with a virtual event. Which is totally logical, isn't it? Because they do, they do that themselves, don't they? The campus, they've got a virtual um, and also they've got this physical one, haven't they? Yeah. I, thought, I thought I'd just give them a shout out because they're nice people. Um, um, on to the next story. Um, um, WP Forms turned two years old. What's new and what's coming up? And um, I, I know I know the chief developer, um, who's also um, a joint owner, and it was just... It, I know they've got the... Most of these installs will be the free version, but I just found it mind-blowing that the 900... Thousand installs of this of this plugin, in and they entered a market that seemed very very competitive. 
You know, there seemed to be a lot of form plugins already, but they really identified that um, there was still a lot of traction there. And of course, their part, you know, they've got Optin Monster and the other plugins that they've got. They, they, don't, they know what they're doing. But was you surprised how well they've done, Chris? Not at all. Um, <laughs> because the product is ubiquitous. Ubiquity, like forms are everywhere. Just like page builders can be used on almost every site. So if a product is in a niche that almost every website could benefit from, it's a huge, massive market. And then the question is just how do they differentiate? Like what makes WP Forms different from the other 20 form options out there? And of course, they've got brilliant marketing and um, business leadership behind the product, the technology itself, which helps launch it into the, that kind of success. So I'm, I'm not surprised at all. I remember when it first came on the scene, it wasn't that long ago. And mm-hmm. here they are about to cross a million. Uh, but it's a, it's a ubiquitous market. Almost every single website has a form on it. And uh, Adam, have you done any kind of videos on it or looked at their particular form builder? Yeah, you know, I used an earlier version, so it's probably a bit different today than when I used it. Um, the thing with, while I'll, while I'll say I'll also, I'm also not uh, surprised uh, for a lot of the same reasons, um, but uh, like, let's compare this to say uh, a WordPress page builder. So this is more in the conversation of it's a, there's established players, can I come in and do this too? The difference between a form plugin and a page builder is people, I got to say, you're not really that passionate about your form plugin, right? So you're not locked into your form plugin. You're not tied or married or joined at the hip with your form plugin. So something uh, uh, better comes along or maybe something that is automatically installed. Have you noticed that WP Forms is actually automatically installed on Softaculous? Did I say that right? I always say that wrong. I used to say soft delicious and then I'd get, I don't know where I came up with that, uh, but it's softaculous. That's that. Oh, uh, your autom- invitation sounds even better. I, I know, right? I mean, come on, let's have fun with this stuff, guys. Um, but um, that's the uh, abil- ability to go into, bring a product to a market where there's already established people. But it's not something where people are loyal to this or that. It's easy to swap out and change. And then with better marketing, probably a better product. But honestly, I don't get excited about a form plugin, right? Because they all kind of do the same thing in just a different way. I mean, no one's really revolutionized it, you know. Actually, Elementor has a form module so you can visually style your form. That's the biggest thing lacking with all these form builders is there's really no way to style it without doing a bunch of manual stuff. Uh, But they come in you work a deal with Softaculous. So if anyone goes on their WordPress host and automatically installs WordPress, guess what you get? You get AskMet, Hello Dolly, and WP Forms. And that's great. I mean, more power to them. Uh, making deals like that uh, gets you active installations. I'm not saying that's the secret to their success because it's not, but it's probably a contributing factor. But it more points to the fact that anyone that can has strategy, connections, um, and some marketing prowess can go into any plugin or theme or niche or business and just go in there and uh, become a dominant force. 
Yeah, I think that's that's great. I think I'm going to wrap it up now because I'm, I'm trying to keep it to an hour because uh, I've had some feedback that something goes on a bit too long. Uh, um, so I'm going to let the panel, um, first of all, John, how can people find out more about what you're up to, John? Well, definitely you can find me at my website, which is lockdowndesign.com, and I'm either lockdown or lockdown design everywhere. So. Yeah, that's great. And Adam, how can people find out more about you, Adam? You can just Google WP Crafter, go to WPCrafter.com or YouTube.com slash WP Crafter. That's great. And Chris, how can people, the comfortable looking Chris, how can, (laughs) and actually your hi-fi has been a lot better this episode actually uh, um, uh, that's because I'm, I'm actually close to the the router I'm not uh, broadcasting through the field <laughs> but uh, thank <laughs> you I'm at lifterlms.com I also have a podcast for course creators and membership site builders called LMS cast if you're watching this live I've got an episode coming up with Jonathan and Adam uh, that were really good. So check that out. Uh, you can just go to LMS. Those haven't gone live yet. Jonathan has had an episode or so a while back, but I've got a couple new ones coming out with the other two here today. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I've really enjoyed the discussion, folks. Like I say, you can watch this live on our Facebook page. Um, look for WP Tonic Show and um, every 8.30 Pacific Standard Time, every Friday am that is you, you can go to the page and watch us live i think it's a great way um obviously um listening you get some of it but i think you, you can see me laughing and pulling faces and acting very childishly there you go so if that's your entertainment there we go i uh, thank the panel i think it's been another great discussion you never thought you listened to a wordpress podcast about with a philosophy section did you there we go you get everything on this show we're here to entertain aren't we so uh, we'll see you next week folks thanks a lot bye thanks for listening to WP Tonic the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week